Hello, gentle listener, and welcome again to Michael Ethan Bitterroot Scotch. I'm your host again, Michael Lilienthal, and this is my guest again, Ethan Bartlett. Hi again. I'm uncomfortable with the use of the word again here so many times as if it's like different from other times. Like, what are, what are we beginning? The podcast, because this isn't the first time that we've done this podcast. Okay, okay. Just making so sure that we're doing we're we're doing it again. Because I hadn't planned to like put part one and part two necessarily in these titles. No. I guess I no. could, and now I sort of feel like I do need to. Nah. People can guess at which one was recorded when. I mean, that's what we usually which... do. Yep. <laughs> Because even, even the ones where I do put part one and part two, and then we make that joke every single time, but it's like, that's buried at the end of our pretty long episode naming convention. <laughs> right. So, so I do have to... You gotta you got want it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, what you could do, too, is you could release these out of order. Oh my gosh. So, oh. That would be... Don't tempt me with a good time like that. <laughs> just to throw everybody off and make me sound like an idiot. Um, <laughs> That's it. I'm going to sit on this one until like 2023. <laughs> Good. We'll be like you'll you'll be like, "Wait, don't we need another episode for this this uh, slot?" and I'll be like, "Oh, don't worry. I got this." Got you covered. We are okay. <laughs> uh, so what are we talking yeah, about, so- Michael? We're talking about poems. Uh, usually we talk about books, but since this is one of our specials, we are in separate rooms, drinking our separate drinks, and talking about things that aren't that one monolithic thing known as a book. Um, we are talking about poems. Specifically this time, we are talking about free verse, or as we've called it, informal poems. Uh, so each of us has brought a poem that does not follow a specific form or structure, and we'll talk about those. But I guess before we talk about those, what are you drinking? Um, I have switched from <gasps> two years ago when I, we released the <laughs> formal poetry special, uh, and I am now drinking Bushmills Black Bush Irish Whiskey. Mm. Um... It's one of my favorite, just like, sort of easy drinking Irish whiskeys. Um, mm-hmm. And that's that's not to like take away from the quality of it. It's it's a uh, even as especially as Irish whiskeys go, it's it's quite high quality. It's not it's no green spot or you know some of the other uh, uh, nicer higher shelf ones. But I like to keep it on hand because I'm never sorry to drink it straight, but. I'm also not sorry to use it in a cocktail if it calls for an Irish whiskey. Um, and it, Blackbush specifically has like a malty quality to it, as well as having that like green apple note that we noted in the green spot. And um, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just a really nice all around uh, nice Irish whiskey. Um, I know that like, all of the Irish Catholics that listen to this podcast are going to be up in arms because I believe Bushmills is considered Protestant whiskey. Um, however, uh, the heart wants what it wants, and the palate also wants what it wants. Uh, so, you know. That's very true. I did not know that that was a distinction that existed, Protestant whiskey versus Catholic um, the only... I mean, I guess I should have expected such a thing. I have to assume, and I guess I could but... look at the the bottle, but um, I've always just assumed that that meant Bushmills was located in, uh, you know, or had its headquarters or something in um, uh, Ulster, you know, in the in the uh, God, traditionally so geographical that Protestant part. I've I've just assumed that. I'm gonna fully admit that I got that distinction from an episode of, of the wire um <laughs> but if if anyone would know, you know something true like that it would be the writers of the wire so i i will say of the wire i haven't actually watched a single episode but i have heard from 
someone in law enforcement that it's one of the most accurate depictions of law enforcement. Oh, interesting. In, yeah. Okay, yeah. That's all I know about The Wire. Sure. Um, <laughs> I've, I've only seen, honestly, I think that one episode, because it was one of those things where it was like a friend was watching it, and I've always meant to watch more of it. Um, but yeah, looking it up quick, uh, the original Bushmills distillery was in County Antrim, which is in what is now Northern Ireland. Um, Got it. Slash has usually been associated with Belfast. So yeah, that would make it Protestant whiskey. Got it. All right. That makes sense. Uh, so everyone listening... Take a shot of your own because Ethan managed to talk about Ireland on this one. <laughs> yes. but, yeah. Very good. Um, Michael, what uh, are you drinking? Well, I have not switched. I am still drinking the Amarula vanilla spice that I was drinking three years ago. <laughs> uh, and it's curdled and is still delicious. So, Okay, well, uh, when this becomes a single host <laughs> podcast halfway through... We'll we will all why. understand why. It's pretty impressive that you managed to hang on to that same bottle this whole time, though. I know it's this is it's like a masterpiece a of moderation. Six-year-old Amarula now that uh, I haven't been drinking since. I've just been holding on to it, waiting for this this episode for ten years. I've been waiting. Oh wow! Okay, and I was already about to say that we'd pretty thoroughly like like jumped the shark on what we said the the time jump thing was going to be because <laughs> originally you had literally said release like not <laughs> anyway but here we are it's 2047 <laughs> we're recording this podcast on the moon since like i guess there are no rules anymore i'm not dr- actually drinking bushmills blackbush i'm drinking mars whiskey michael and ethan in a room with scotch first podcast on the moon that's <laughs> <laughs> uh that's that's a goal that is that a goal yeah this podcast like, listen if you've been you know sleeping on donating to the patreon like it's no time like the present that's a stretch goal <laughs> exactly <laughs> oh good so uh with these uh these drinks there are no rules so we don't need to to hear any rules we don't need my wife uh, and we don't need your it's wife okay you can just say um it. so instead we're just going to talk about these poems that uh we've brought and uh we'll introduce them let the the listener go and read those read those poems and then come back and we'll talk about them so, Ethan, what is the poem that you have brought? Uh, mine is called The Second Coming, and it is by William Butler Yeats, mm-hmm. which is spelled as though and... it rhymes with Keats, but it doesn't. But it's not. Yes. And I brought The Leaves by Austin Smith. And so with that, gentle listener, go read these poems back to back. No break in between, out loud, and then come right back and listen. So go now. And welcome back. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I don't know what order you read those in, but here's the order we're going to talk about them in. Uh, We're going to talk about mine first. I'm shocked. I'm shocked by that. I'm surprised and shocked. Take that. Take that. Also, I lost you as you were saying... uh, like go read the poems like you you froze on me and then you unfroze oh. as you were saying and welcome back so i thought it was for me <laughs> that's pretty fortuitous <laughs> right yeah. that's good um so yes i brought uh the poem the leaves by austin smith um which was published in the december 2020 issue of poetry magazine uh which is where i first encountered it and it's a poem that stood out to me in that issue as being something a little different from the rest. And I needed to think about it more to figure out why it stood out to me so much. It's the only poem by Austin Smith in Poetry Magazine. He has written several collections of poems. Uh, He's a lecturer 
at Stanford University, and um, he seems to be fairly prolific, but this is the only one that he had in this this issue. And it struck me as just sweet. Mm. Maybe that's the first thing that I want to say about it. It's just sweet. You you joked earlier that uh, you thought it should be titled The Leaves, but not the ones you're thinking of. <laughs> and that's, that's absolutely perfect, because when you see a poem titled The Leaves, you have a picture in your mind that might be uh, informed by, um, uh, what's his name? Walt Whitman. Um, Walt Whitman, thank you. And it's not that. <laughs> <laughs> it's far more pedestrian maybe sure um maybe that's certainly uh, less romantic in the literary yeah sense. yeah right but at the same time it does have some romanticism to yeah. it uh that is imbued into day-to-day life yeah um it it's well it's about the leaves in a table Right. Right. That, you know, in a dining room table that separates into sections and then you can put the leaves in there to extend it, make it bigger. And this is the poem says uh, of those leaves that they only came out when company came out. And just that little that that repetition there, we've talked about repetition in poetry before, but that repetition in the second line of this poem struck me as just this observation in a playful wonderment Mm. of life in general that leaves came out when company came out (laughs) and there's this this unity between the leaves and company and it it goes on uh down the poem he says i love the nights we needed all the leaves uh they meant there were still too many of us to fit around the leafless table um and he goes on and talks about how the the leaves always came out only when company was out, but then someday there would happen a time when they didn't need the leaves anymore, but he thought they should still use mm-hmm. them because then they'd be shouting uh, and, and speaking up loudly toward each other rather than just, uh, what do you say, sit whispering around the leafless one, the leafless table, mm-hmm. um, which is just this juxtaposition of pictures of how life is, how life could be, and how life uh, might uh, also be on the other side. Mm. Um, how, how he wants it to be and how he doesn't want it to be um, in connection with how it currently is. And he's enjoying what it is while being worried about what it might be, but also hoping that something can be maintained uh, about how it is. Um, yeah. I Do you have any immediate thoughts about this poem? Um, I guess I just trying to think of it in, in formal terms, uh, as we mm-hmm. mentioned, uh, 17 years ago, um, in the, <laughs> the formal poetry special, uh, the uh, formal used in, in the sense of, of giving form and giving shape and, um it may be it may actually be a better use or it may be a better choice i guess to use the phrase formal verse versus free verse as opposed to calling it informal Mm -hmm. because um the thing that a lot of people don't get is that free verse still has form um there are either you can either say it is there still is form or there are forms within it uh and those might mean mm-hmm. slightly different things, but um, you know the point is that you're still writing a poem, uh, and that's still, mm-hmm. you know, very broad sense. That's still a form. Um, and to me, the most interesting thing, uh, talking about you know a poem as as a form or as free verse, is to sort of interrogate why. Uh, why you would choose to use that particular um, form or that that particular like why is this why is this unrhymed you know uh, uh, free verse as opposed to say a sonnet or something um, 
and you know in a sense that's like that's the fallacy of begging the question or something but um the point is like poets make choices about form as much as they do about content um Mm -hmm. and in that sense like free verse almost has a uh People who write bad free verse write it not because they're constrained, but because they're too free. They can, the fact that they can do almost anything is often detrimental. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I call to mind a certain um, uh, one poem, extre- one extremely long poem chapbook that I brought you back from Ireland. <laughs> uh where the poet did whatever she wanted over the course of 19 pages, but it wasn't good. Um, So free verse to me is almost more challenging in the sense that you have to, instead of having a structure or a a form to sort of hang your thoughts on, you have to be creating the form and the structure as well as the the content. Um, You're doing double duty. Yeah. And uh, with that all in mind, um, my and believe it or not, this is in ser- all in service of answering your question of just what did I think uh-huh. about it or what was the first thing that came to mind, <laughs> which is that it's a really it's formally it's really interesting. Um, sure. Partly because you know free verse is always always fascinating, but. Um, for one thing, the fact that there that it's only one long stanza um, is mm-hmm. interesting and possibly deceptive uh, because it almost makes it seem mm. like a run-on sentence or like a single yeah. thought. And in a sense, it is a single thought, but it's a single thought with several parts to it. Um, yeah, and it, it almost it almost uh, something we didn't talk about with like Claude McKay is that. The sonnet has, especially the Shakespearean sonnet, traditionally has two parts. There's a, um, I think it's called an argument and an answer or something like that. The first eight lines are like a unit and the last six lines are a unit. Um, And they they sort of respond to each other. And I feel like this poem has some of that. Uh, Like you could could chunk it out into um, just kind of, just kind of a, uh, glancing here you know the first uh the first five lines seem like a unit and maybe the um i don't know maybe the the next five lines maybe seem like a un- unit and then um i don't know i i don't want to like chunk out the whole poem necessarily but like there are there are like sub thoughts within this thought but then the fact that right the fact that that's true and that Smith chose to to keep them all together, keep them all sitting together in company with each other, uh, in almost a, an overcrowded or a you know uh-huh. a, a sense like that um, seems very intentional. And it's again one of those things where the form right the form follows the the content. Um, yeah. So that's one. Also, the fact that there are like the the section you read even. Uh, I loved the nights we needed all the leaves. Like that's iambic. Um, yep. They meant there were still too many. Like it falls a little. It falls out of the meter in the next section. But like, there's there's like iams and there's there are a lot of iams. Yeah, sections. I think I think there. there are some like dactyls and stuff also. Um, yeah, I'd have to scan it more closely to be sure. But like, there's there's some interesting metrical stuff going on. Um. I don't know. I guess those are my like initial thoughts. Yeah. Well, and there are a few other things uh, structurally um, in the poem that serve the content. The shortest line in the poem is the table wasn't finite, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is a fantastic shortest line to have Mm -hmm. that. And it's connected with that, uh, uh, that biblical allusion to the, yeah, the, um, turned out that like the loaves and fishes, the table wasn't finite. Uh, which that's an yeah, iambic line too. Scanning turned out that, that quick. like the loaves and fishes. 
table wasn't finite. Uh, and that's just, yeah, it, it gets this sense of, of communion around the mm. table. It gets this imagery of togetherness and that idyllic concept of a family and the guests all sitting around the same table, maybe at a meal, maybe playing a game, just having a conversation which that, that's maybe a key here too that the, it never says what the people are doing around the table there's just the people around the table this allusion to the loaves and fishes is the only mention of food yeah which and, is interesting because you pretty much still know exactly what's happening around that table exactly by omission yeah. really <laughs> you, you 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 don't need anything more said you know what's 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 there and that that's some of that uh, universality that this is an experience that we can understand uh, and connect with. But you said that it seems almost like a run-on sentence, and it it does. I I had to look at it again to make sure that mm. it wasn't. Uh, that was my first or one of my first impressions mm. of it. That this is just one long run-on sentence, and that strikes me as a master stroke in the composition because it serves it really well to be one run-on sentence yeah having this table that's not finite that extends anytime you need it to but it also isn't a run-on sentence that this table is finite when you need it to and there there's that undertone of melancholy in the mm-hmm. poem it's it's a reminiscence on this uh happy time happy occasion that uh is uh, almost a golden age of of the household uh when you have these leaves coming out for company and and such but then there's always that time that the leaves aren't going to need to be there anymore they're going to need to take the leaves out which is an interesting feature here that you get the impression, or it's not even an impression, it's explicitly the, the fact here that the leaves come out only when company comes right. out. And so the leaves aren't always in the table, but you get this detailed description of how the leaves get put in. Uh, Dad would lift one end of the table, my brothers and I the other, then we'd shuffle a few steps backward, pulling the table apart. You get this whole impression of how the table gets pulled apart in order to put the the leaves in, but you never get a description of the opposite, of how the leaves get taken out and put back away, which is something he easily could have done. He could have described that whole thing, but the thing is, the the narrator of the poem doesn't want to describe that. He doesn't want to think about that. He wants the leaves to stay there. He wants to remember the anticipation of people coming to put the leaves in and having the the need for all of those leaves he doesn't want to take them out and that's what the end of the poem gets to he doesn't want the the leaves coming out and that's that that description there which is the only physical description it is those first five lines the leaves lived behind the dining room doors they only came out when company came out dad would lift one end of the table and so on that that's the only physical description of all of uh of the table and the leaves and everything the rest is just a a meditation right. on it um possibly at the end you get uh, uh, an image but it's not as concrete as the the beginning uh, of the poem it's more of a a wish an idealization uh, at the end there but that concreteness uh, of lifting the table pulling it apart shuffling backward uh, all of that it almost sounds counterintuitive that you've got a separation going on in order to create this togetherness right. uh, which is an awesome juxtaposition i think especially when you have it so close to the miracle of the loaves right. and the fishes right that this image of this food is broken apart into even smaller little bits when there's not enough of it, but then it's not finite. It's enough for everyone. That the table is the perfect comparison to that because you break it apart, you make it worthless in order to make it 
worthwhile for everyone to make it suitable for all of the the people who are sitting around right. it. I think it's just a really sweet meditation on this very pedestrian part of <laughs> life in middle-class America. Right. <laughs> like that that's exactly the kind of table i have sitting right behind me where i'm right. recording here <laughs> yeah no we, i have we've got some leaves in there we have one upstairs so, yeah. like we and i had a, it's, another it's, one growing up with my parents yep yep exactly we did too um and my we inherited at a certain point in my life uh the one that my dad had growing up uh at the the farmhouse where where he lived with 10 brothers and sisters and so that one had a <laughs> yeah. lot of leaves in it but the the point is, this is a ubiquitous feature in households. This, this is you can find this, and even if uh, a particular person doesn't have this sort of table or has never had this sort of table, that person is going to be familiar with this sort of table from mm-hmm. others who have had it. It's it's just a common right. thing. This uh, it's a table in pieces in order to suit many many people and the point is that when you've got all those people together that's a good time which is a really simple way to say what this whole what 19 line poem says (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i was trying to figure out um i think there's a shakespeare sonnet where right in the middle of it there's like a it's like a six foot line or something instead of a 10 foot line or a mm. wait. How was Shakespeare's line five feet or 10 feet? I can't remember what a foot is. Uh, ten, uh no, five feet. Uh, five so there's feet. like a three foot line or something. Yeah. 10 yeah. syllables. Yeah. Uh, um, and I, 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 I couldn't find it. So I don't know if this is just something my brain is, is, uh, creating, but, um that that set of ims we pointed out before turned out that like the loaves and fishes the table wasn't finite like i want to say rhythmically that calls back to whatever sonnet this is um which sure again i may or may not be right about that and even if the parallel is there that obviously doesn't prove causation but um you know that's that's still to say like a poem like this canon often does reach back in reference or in in borrowing of technique to a much earlier um tradition or uh you know yeah you don't have to be people often have this this idea that there's like a break between formal poetry and free verse and mm. the the reality is much more fluid than that yeah yeah there's it's I don't think there was really a moment where someone wrote a free verse poem and people were like, what? You right. can't do that. Um, <laughs> well, cause like William Blake, um, you know, wrote what amount to, what amounts to free verse in the 18th century in some of his works. And, you know, so. Right. That's the earliest example yeah. I can think of. I'm sure there are others. Well, and I think um, t- thinking about that Shakespeare poem, that sounds really familiar to me. So I think it probably does sure. exist somewhere, but I'm not sure. But it's like, I think, I don't know. I, I think know either way, is. like anytime, this was something that I uh, had to learn in my journey from writing bad poetry to writing slightly less bad poetry, is that anytime you've established a certain average line length, like the first... Uh, you know, six lines of this poem do. Um, anytime you then break that convention and you have a shorter line, it inherently emphasizes right. the shortness of the yep. or the content of that that short line, which is certainly out. what Smith yeah. is doing here. And uh, uh, you know, it's it's what Shakespeare would have been doing in the possibly imaginary sonnet that we both remember. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> but. Yeah. Uh, that's why that's why incidentally a lot of like bad free verse poetry is bad because people pick up on this idea that free verse poetry has a lot of like breaks or like emphases on yep. a single line or a single phrase and that it's like long lines yep. and then short lines and then a long line and a short line or stuff like that um which are all perfectly valid techniques but like 
when you use the technique without yeah. understanding what it's doing, you just end up sounding like an idiot. Right, right. You know, you're you're creating the the form at the same time you're creating the poem, right? And that means that you're creating conventions right. uh, at the same time that you're writing the poem, which also means that then you can break the conventions you're making within the poem that's creating the conventions. But you better and... know what you're doing when you do that. <laughs> you exactly there's so much going on that to do it well involves all these moving parts yeah which again is uh speaking of so, oh you were yeah. you were about to do a really good transition weren't you it's okay <laughs> it's not that good no uh which which just goes back to one of the first things i said which is like in a sense free verse poetry is almost harder to do well than yeah than a uh, formal poetry right Right. I think I think you're onto something with that idea. Um, but yes, speaking of conventions and things, something that didn't occur to me to look for in this poem until while we're looking at it now is punctuation. Oh, sure. So we talked about how it feels like one run on sentence, and this is semi related well, to and that. I should emphasize probably in support hopefully in support of your point, um, that like there are poems that are one sentence long. Like there you know, that is yes, that there is a are. thing. Mm -hmm. So looking at punctuation is a is an extremely valid like uh, uh, endeavor, I guess. Right, and I think there's something very deliberate being done with punctuation in this poem, and I think it serves the content of the poem very well as well. And that is, most of the punctuation comes at the end of yes. a line. Uh, periods, there's a couple of question marks. Um, Commas, not so much at the ends of lines. There are a few, but there's a distinct difference right about halfway through the poem. Uh, the third line has a comma in the middle. Then the line after that has a period in the middle, which is the only period in the middle of a line. Uh, and then the next one has another comma, then another comma. Then we've got the short line and then one that's just complete. And that first complete one besides what we had uh, in the first two lines is we could make it as long as we needed it to be. That's one complete sentence in sure. one line. Um, and then the line after that, did we need one leaf, comma, two leaves, comma, three, question mark. And that one gets um, multiple pieces of punctuation within one line. After that, there is no punctuation in the middle of a line. Okay, interesting. That is the last instance, and it's right about halfway through. I haven't actually done the line count, but uh, it's it's right about halfway where that change happens. And at the end of that is this meditation on needing all mm. the leaves. I think that's very significant that the table is no longer segmented and broken. The table is complete sure. uh, for the last half of this poem. And so the lines are echoing that completeness by being full complete lines and many of those full complete lines end with punctuation uh as well whereas in the first half of the poem there was punctuation in right. the middle i think that's deliberately done. um no it, yeah it feels that feels right i like that is always interesting when i remember to look for it because kind of like you were saying i i don't necessarily always it's not the first thing that comes to mind yeah. is to count periods. Um, but right. it is it is always interesting. And sometimes it jumps out at me. And usually, like, usually it jumps out at me when there is a lot of punctuation at the ends of lines. Um, and I don't know how shallow of a, of a thing that is to look at, honestly, because, like, it feels like on a surface level, one of the things you do to kind of make your poem seem more like a poem especially in in free verse is to um put your line breaks not where your punctuation is uh and and yeah. there is you know I, I it can be like a shallow thing where you're like because you're one of the cool kids you you don't put your punctuation where it's logical for it to be um mm -hmm. but there is like <laughs> there's a certain flow that's achieved when you don't do that and there's there's a certain like rhythm that's achieved when you do and it can seem like a very sort of dull rhythm um in other words like sometimes if if you have a, a line that's just a sentence with a period at the end and then another line that's a sentence with a period at the end it's like why are you doing why are you writing this as a poem 
as opposed to just sort of writing a short essay or something or a you know short memoir or something um yeah and you know that's that's a set of concerns like or a set of uh, uh things to think about and, and wrestle with when you're writing a poem and i haven't necessarily said it the most eloquent way but the point is like i think as you were talking about especially that middle of the poem where you, you know the the content is they're they're you know, sort of chonking those leaves in those are those are complete sentences as well as complete lines we could make it as long as we needed it be did, mm-hmm. it, did we need one leaf two leaves three uh depended on who all was coming they're like laid there in almost the same way that you'd lay the leaves on the table being described yeah yeah absolutely uh oh, yeah good. so that was i guess a long-winded way of sort of agreeing with a small part of what you just said but nice nice <laughs> thank you uh anything else on the leaves by austin um, smith nothing nothing comes to mind that's a great poem i really enjoyed it okay yeah no it's it's one of those poems that i feel like i want to have at my mm. fingertips because it's so applicable i don't know if that's the right word but it's it's a good poem to have i think yeah absolutely yeah um go ahead michael yeah well let's go on to uh to your poem for this recording the second coming by william butler yates very good uh so this is you know kind of a classic like a lot of people will probably have encountered this poem in either high school or college um but it's really interesting you know it's got a lot of quotable lines i don't know um Mm. and it's specifically interesting when you're talking about uh form form versus versus free verse i guess um partly because uh it's i mean it's at the same time as it's like a a very well-studied poem it's a weird poem (laughs) um and it's a weird poem because it's actually the embodiment of what I understand to be William Butler Yeats's almost own personal. And the the uh, word to use here is tricky because the standard one would be religion, but I think part of his like project was to sort of get away from formal religion. Um, and you know so you 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 see the title the second coming and you think of the bible you think of uh you know Mm -hmm. um the second coming of christ like that's it's william butler yates is doing us a little bit dirty here because he knows that especially you know in the in the time a hundred plus years ago when he's publishing this poem he knows that's the association most people are going to have right but yates is like um his whole deal basically was that he he didn't he didn't believe in in christianity i don't think i think he thought that was um a lot of hokey mumbo jumbo uh i may be doing a a disservice to you know his his intellect uh with that description but what he did believe was that there were cycles of history and that they uh either elaborated or started over every 2000 years um and so he believed that the birth of christ initiated one of those cycles and he believed that living nearly 2000 years after that uh we were living in a time when um sort of the next cycle was beginning there's i think Yates, you know was fascinated by eastern religion and, and hinduism and there's certainly a very hindu uh um vibe to all of this belief you know the Mm -hmm. in in hinduism there are these great ages of the world and they have these characteristics um so uh when yates talks about the second coming he thinks a new spirit or a new thing is being born that's the equivalent of christ being born uh and will have the equivalent effect on the world Mm -hmm. um 
and I believe he called it the Antichrist, as in it's whatever the spirit of Christ is, it's the opposite spirit. Um, and so that wild set of beliefs is like what uh, uh, is is being sort of embodied in this poem. Gotcha. Um, and I don't know a whole lot more about his beliefs than that. Sure. Like, just going from the text, it certainly seems like, you know, he believes that whatever it's a it's a spirit of of disorder or anarchy. Um, uh, I mean, and the the fray, the line in the poem is "mere anarchy is loosed upon the world." Uh, but I guess part of the thing that's fascinating to me about this poem is that it's so idiosyncratic and like mm. it's not like there's anything called gatesism that like exists today <laughs> right uh you know there's probably some like some of the people who claim to be like rosicrucians or other like esoteric orders might claim that there's there's certain knowledge in this poem that jives with them but mm. um whatever like you know it's it's not like you know there there are Catholic poets from a hundred years ago, and you read them, and it's like, oh, this is this is a Catholic poem. Like, uh, you know, this this poem is like a, a Yeatsian poem, and I I don't know what else to call it besides that. Um, but the fascinating thing to me, partly about it, is that so many people have found images and phrases in it resonant. Um, mm since its publication and and afterwards uh you know the uh um of course you you could almost go you know reference sort of anachronistically i guess go reference hunting in the text of this poem oh, sure um in the sense like things fall apart That's, is yeah. the the great novel by chino achebe um you know the uh i know there have been multiple works i don't know if any of them have been significant but multiple works called the center cannot hold or just that mm. phrase even is like it comes up you know yeah. uh uh you know just different places um i certainly heard people quoting the best lack all conviction conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity i certainly heard people quoting that between 2016 and 2020 among other uh you know and and certainly that's not the first era of you know history in the last 100 years but that's been seemed relevant to certain people or groups of, of people right yeah um and then uh uh there's a great or i i guess i shouldn't say great because i haven't read it but certainly a renowned collection of essays by joan didion um that's called slouching towards bethlehem mm. uh and you know you could analyze it more generally more broadly as like uh a reaction to um i thought i would be faster at googling when it was published um okay so november 1920 um so re you know a in with uh, even Claude McKay and and uh, if we must die um, among you know T. S. Eliot's The Wasteland, a lot of these post World War One uh, poems that all ha feature these themes of you know anarchy and and blood dim tides and and you know having been through at the time by magnitude the most horrific war in the recorded history of the world. Um, you know, a lot of these sorts of, of images and, and uh, uh, ideas were certainly on the minds of, of European poets. Um, so you can also analyze it in that sense, and that may be part, that embodiment of the zeitgeist may be part of part of why, you know, it's it took so much uh, hold. Oh, the other, the other example I was going to give was a, a homily um, by uh, Dr. Steve Regals, a, a beloved uh, uh -huh. teacher of both of ours in undergraduate. One, one of his homilies when I was a student at uh, Bethany Lutheran College, he sort of used as his, his you know, central image or, or whatever 
the first two lines of this poem, the turning and turning and the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer, mm. which anyone listening who happens to know Dr. Regals will not be surprised that it's like one of the most esoteric images, at least in the first stanza of this poem, mm-hmm. that he, you know, focused on. But that image is, uh, you know, the the uh, the idea of like a falconer, you know, has this bond with, with the falcon and like, the idea is the falcon can can swoop up very high into the air, but the falconer can recall it, right? So there's this mm-hmm. this discipline or this connection there, um, and so it's this image of the the falcon, you know, having gone so high that it got disconnected from that from that source. Yeah. Well, uh, and it's it's that widening gyre too that it's not just high up, but it's far afield as it's widening right. out, which I think relates directly to the center cannot hold that the falconer is there at the center, right. can't hold on to the falcon. The center of all things can't hold on to order, so mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Right. Um, yeah. Um. And so taking all of this into talking about form, mm. uh, I believe we've talked in a previous poetry special, I believe we talked about the Irish airman foresees his death, I think. Um, that sounds, yes, I think we did. Uh, and I've certainly used it as a punishment for you. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, that's also a Yeats poem, and it's known as one of the the best and most perfect, like, rhymed poems of all time uh you know it has it's not like a it's not a, a sestina or a, a villanelle or anything like that like it doesn't have a a form in that way but it's just a you know classic whatever a b a b style rhyme with multiple stanzas um so the point is yeats is very capable of doing that type of poem if he wants to mm-hmm. uh and this is part of my part of what I was saying, even with the leaves about you write a free verse poem intentionally, at least if you have oh, yes. the control over, you know, language that someone like Yeats or or uh, uh, Austin Smith clearly does. Um, so it's it's interesting, you know, the the form almost follows the the function or the the content here in that. Um, this poem would sound ridiculous if you tried to rhyme it. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, there would be, formally, there would be an implication of of an order or of a, of a pattern uh, that is completely anathema to the theme of this poem. Yes. Um, and so I guess partly I, th- I just think it's, on a formal level, it's interesting in that sense. Yeah. Um, well, it does lend itself a little bit to an apocalyptic sense that like apocalyptic literature that sounds poetic but in a more free verse way um that's that's a really limping image yeah i was wondering if you had any other like examples of what you're talking about well you think of of apocalyptic literature and it's all metaphor and symbolism and such like that but if you tried to rhyme it it would sound dumb (laughs) and uh that's that's something that comes out of this also which i think yates is deliberately sounding almost like uh saint john's revelation uh sure in in well in some of the images you know you've got um uh, he says, uh, a vast image out of spiritus mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs, while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. That sounds very much like one of the beasts of Revelation that yeah, is rising up and doing its horrible thing and then... Uh, yeah, and it's it's just a symbol, which, is, from what you've described about his beliefs and everything, sounds appropriate, that he would mm-hmm. conceive of things very symbolically. Mm-hmm. And that's what's coming out here, that uh, this 
um, creature that's coming out um, is symbolic of the new age. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, well, those final two lines, what rough beast, it's our come round at last slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. That's very apocalyptic. And right. I think the free verse form, ha ha ha, free verse form, uh, <laughs> suits that style mm-hmm. really, really well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, he does take a lot of those um, biblical sounding images and things and and concepts the second coming which is is repeated here uh right surely the second coming is at hand the second coming and he comments on it by repeating it hardly are those words out when a vast image out of spiritus mundi trembles my sight that um the second coming is a phrase fraught with meaning and weight and something conceptual to it and so he's sort of trying to redefine it i think yeah absolutely in the poem and asking what what's coming what is right coming in this second coming yeah it's it's aside from his his beliefs whatever those those beliefs might be however crazy you might think they are whatever this poem ultimately is what does the future hold Right. And I, I suspect that may be why it... Yeah. Because I, th- I think it was immediately popular. I mean, Gates was, you know... Oh, yeah. Well-known in his own lifetime. But um, I, I suspect that exact question or that exact meditation yeah. almost might be exactly why it, you know, hooked so many people in its own sure. time. Um, it, it's fraught with the, anxiety about the future. It is, but it's also, like, it's interesting to me historically, like, again, you have to think about, if you know anything about World War One, you have to think about a world where that had happened and World War Two, and, you know, mm, yep. all of the, all of the uh, atrocities and catastrophes of that had not yet happened. Mm-hmm. Like, World War One was genuinely apocalyptic to the people that it affected. Um, right. And... It's interesting the the uh, the writers that come out of it or come after it seem to think of it less because what it literally was was the downfall of um, Europe as it had come to be probably bet- from at least the 1500s through the you know through the 19th century at its peak to you know the the early 20th century like that Europe in a space of four years that Europe disappeared. And it was never going to be what it might have been if World War One hadn't happened. Um, yeah. And it's interesting that like a lot of the artists at this time seem to think that that demolishing, rather than being the end of one world, was the beginning of the next, or or sure. a new world, or that it simultaneously was both. Um, and so you know, Yeats probably is partially drawing the history of Europe into the history of Christianity, mm-hmm. uh, which historiographically is not unfair, um, mm-hmm. to and, and drawing that all the way back to that image of the rocking cradle in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago and saying, mm-hmm. what now, what's the new, what's the new thing coming out of Bethlehem or what's the new thing coming out of this, you know, the ruins of this, this world. This ongoing history. Yeah. That, like... But it's also now. with this this sense that there's either yep. been an end to history or yep. the start of a new history or something. Right, right. It's it's collapsed. It's fallen apart. It has lost its hold. And so what's coming out of its ashes? Right. Um, but at the same time, it, it as you mentioned, and it, it cannot be overemphasized that, yeah, this is a... It's not... It doesn't seem optimistic. If there's an optimism it here, it's either very very dark or very very esoteric right and i think possibly the most optimistic thing i can find in this poem is an optimism by virtue of a more 
full pessimism. <laughs> mm-hmm. What I mean is, uh, it, it seems pessimistic about the second coming, but I think it's just as pessimistic about the previous age. Sure. That that came before. Yeah. Uh, that that everything. Yep. Twenty centuries of stony sleep stony were sleep, vexed to nightmare vexed. by a rocking cradle. Right. Exactly. So that all of that, like that, all sucked. Mm. So. This is going to suck too. <laughs> it's, right. it's it's new and different, but it's also more of the same. Um, so it, it's it's that anxiety about the future while recognizing the ongoing negativity that's sure. there. So it, it's that there's you know the devil, you know, sort of right. idea in right. there that we know it's going to be rough, right. whatever it is. And so we've dealt with rough. We're going to continue to deal with rough. Or even maybe like the idea of, you know, putting a form to this devil that you don't know so that you turn him into a devil that you do know. Mm, Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a good way to to put it. Um, So, And I think that is something that is extremely easy to identify with. Uh, yeah. Everyone well, and... is worried about the future. Everyone is is worried about the the status quo that they know that they're familiar with falling apart. The the right. undiscovered country, you know, the uh, the thing that we don't know right. coming is always more terrifying than what we do know. Even if yeah. what we do know absolutely sucks. Right. And I mean, historically, like probably more centers have fallen apart than have held, depending on your. Mm-hmm sort of perspective instability seems to be much more uh common in human history than stability does yeah yeah um i think so you know yeah and i mean you know looking at the the century that has passed since this uh this poem came out it's hard to say that you know yates was wrong in at least the the general perceptions that he had of, uh, of the future right yeah i think that's fair and on that note on that note uh well thank you for following us on this poetic journey gentle listener and let us know what you thought of uh these poems and if there's any poem that we should talk about or uh should never talk about that that'd be just as interesting if you think we should never talk about a specific poem we definitely will uh Thank so you. give us your feedback uh in the contact section of the tapestryradio.org website or on twitter at room with scotch or on facebook in the tapestry radio tap house that uh, group you can request to join that uh and we will let you in unless you are the rough beast born in bethlehem Uh, uh, we will also do your homework not promising to do it well but we'll do it in a way that you can print out and hand into your teacher so that you get hauled off to plagiarism jail and we condone that plagiarism because it's funny Uh, go to tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast and fill out the form at the top of the page and we'll do what we can for you there if you like this podcast, check out the rest of the Tapestry Radio Network, Intermission, the Backstage Drama Podcast, Us Play Fiasco, the Fiasco Actual Play RPG Improv Podcast. Uh, Freddy Goes to a Podcast, where we read and discuss the Freddy the Pig children's book series, and Pokemon Roll Out the Pokemon Tabletop United Actual Play RPG Podcast. Rate and review all of these podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and anywhere else that you get those listening goodies so that others can find us and listen to us as well. Ethan, where can they find you? Uh, I am on Twitter at Bjartlet. It's at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. I'm on some other social media, but not in like a real way. So that's probably, (laughs) if you wanted to find me, that's probably the best place. Can we find you on Dear Blank, Please Blank? Uh, uh, we can, but we made that reference 94 years ago, so. That's true. <laughs> and it was ancient even then, so. It's right, that's right. <laughs> uh, well, I'm on Twitter at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L, and until next time, just remember, and we'll cry if we think too much about the future. <laughs> so, Bye. Bye.
obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.